and welcome to the Commander Theory Podcast. I'm Nick Beatman, and I'm here with my friend, Zach Mack. Hello, everybody. We also have a very special guest today for our very last set review episode for Theros Beyond Death. We have with us Charlotte Sable. Welcome to the show. Good to be back. So we've seen the last batch of legendary creatures and cards from Theros Beyond Death in the past week. We'll start with the legendary creatures, go into the non-legendary cards, and then wrap up with our overall thoughts on the set. The first card we're going to be talking about is Terranica, a Crowan veteran. Or maybe Terranica? Yeah, Trying to I get these, don't know. these Greek phonemes, right? One white-white for a 3-3 legendary human soldier. She has vigilance. Whenever she attacks, untap another target creature you control. Until end of turn, that creature has base power and toughness 4-4 and gains indestructible. I don't know that it's necessarily something you want to build a deck around. Yeah, I think as a commander, she doesn't give you a whole lot to build around. In terms of creatures that are really good to give indestructible, there's Magus of the Disc, but then like Tyrannica doesn't actually protect herself. So I was thinking like you could put a Dark Steel Plate or a Gift of Immortality on her and then she gives the Magus indestructible. But then it's like, well, why not just put the plate or the gift of immortality on the magus? Or, or why not run Avacyn, Angel of Hope, as your commander and protect it that way? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, the fact that the uh, indestructible, it's a trigger that goes on the stack. So it's telegraphed a lot as opposed to a lot of the other times where if you want to give something indestructible temporarily, it's more as a reaction to something else. So this doesn't really work for that either. The next commander we're going to be talking about is Illyrios Enraptured. Two and a blue for a 2-3 legendary creature human. Illyrios enters the battlefield tapped. Illyrios doesn't untap during your untap step if you control a reflection. And when Illyrios enters the battlefield, create a 3-2 blue reflection creature token. Similar to Tyrannica, there doesn't seem to be a lot of build around for this guy. You can blink him to get new tokens, but if you're looking to generate tokens in mono blue, like Talrand is going to be your go-to, and it's just a lot easier to do it there. Might be more interesting if the token could deal commander damage. It's always the thing with a legendary that makes tokens. Should the token be able to deal commander damage if it's your commander? You know, that might make for a more interesting deck, but yeah, just as it is, this card is kind of boring. This is an interesting design space, but like you said, like there's not really anything you can do with this. Yeah, I think they were really trying to capture the flavor of Narcissus, and making a playable commander was a lower priority for oh, him. Oh yeah, for sure. The next commander is Thrix the Sudden Storm. Three blue blue for a 4-5 legendary creature elemental giant. It has flash and flying, and spells you cast with converted mana cost 5 or greater cost 1 less to cast and can't be countered. I'm not looking at it as a commander. I don't know that it makes for that interesting of a deck, because like, it's really hard to run too much high end in a deck anyway. The most interesting thing I can think of is that he would be a very interesting sort of time warp sort of commander because if you're playing the more expensive extra turn effects then those can't be countered but like again that's not all that interesting i do like that idea of using it as a time warp type commander because like most of the time warp effects cost five or more there's also some combo pieces that work with them that cost five or more like conjurer's closet mnemonic wall salvager of secrets i was also thinking that ice cave might be some good tech for this deck 
Ice Cave is three blue blue for an enchantment. Whenever a player casts a spell, any other player may pay that spell's mana cost. If a player does, counter the spell. So it's sort of like a symmetrical counter effect, lets everyone mess with each other. But because your commander prevents your stuff from getting countered, it, it breaks the symmetry on that card. The next card we're going to be talking about is Anax, Hardened in the Forge. One red red for a star three legendary enchantment creature demigod. Anax's power is equal to your devotion to red. Whenever Anax or another non-token creature you control dies, create a 1-1 red satyr creature token with this creature can't block. If the creature had power 4 or greater, create two of those tokens instead. As far as these demigod creatures have gone, this has been my favorite one. I think this is like the only one that I would want to build out of the five. And he looks a lot like one of my other old favorite commanders, which is just like Sekouar Deathkeeper, where when you sack a non-token, you get a token. And he just suffers from mono-red problems. <laughs> that's that's the biggest problem I think this guy has. But he, I do think he's cool. There's like a lot of good mono-red sack outlets nowadays that give you a lot of value. Some of the good sack outlets in mono-red are Dark Dweller Oracle, Goblin Bombardment, Sheevan Harvest, Skull Clamp. And then you also have a little bit of sack fodder in the form of the two Squeeze and Flame Wake Phoenix. Those are all good self-recurring creatures, but I think this might just need some more colors. Black offers so many good non-token sacrifice fodder cards like Bloodgast, Reassembling Skeleton, Bloodsoak Champion, etc., etc. And Black also has some really good sacrifice outlets. So I think it's going to be a little tricky to, to make this work you can't really vulture on him too well, so you're going to have to build around this ability a little bit. And again, like you don't have the black, like you said, you don't have green, so you can't like greater good or like evolutionary leap or birthing pod or like do anything kind of techie there. I like him the most of the demigods, but I still, I don't know if I like him enough. <laughs> One idea I've heard for him is like he does naturally combo with um, Ashnod's altar and Nim Deathmantle. Because he triggers off of himself dying, so you can sack him, get a satyr, and then sack that satyr as well. You have four mana, and then you have enough to bring him back with the death mantle. And if his, his power is four or greater, then you actually net satyrs. It's a little difficult to assemble in mono red, because you just have so few options when it comes to tutors. I think I like him more in the 99 of stuff. Like He's just a really good piece for any sort of aristocrats-style deck. I mean, I'm going to give him a try in my Alesha deck, which has a definite token theme in it. And also, if I have low enough devotion, I can even pull him out of the graveyard with Alesha, which is something I'm hoping for. I don't think he'd make a very interesting commander, like you said, though. So this is Renata, Called to the Hunt. This is a star three legendary enchantment creature demigod for two and two green. Her power is equal to your devotion to green, and each other creature you control enters the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it. This is very similar to like what a Malira list would look like. Anytime you see like a green commander that deals with counters, that's kind of where my brain goes. <laughs> Malira, if you haven't seen that list before, is a lot of like persist creatures and sack outlet combos. The big thing Malira has over this is that she only costs two. <laughs> Renata yeah. costs four, and yeah, she gets more power, but that wasn't really why I wanted to play a Malira list in the first place. Yeah, and I mean, we also even just got Grumgully in the last set, which gives you access to another color and is cheaper. Yeah, I definitely don't think that Renata 
really adds much to the format because we just have too many similar commanders. Yeah, and like you said, Grumgully did this better by adding a color. If I had him on the array deck, I'd probably want Renata just as a backup, just in case, you know, my uh, Melira got turned into an elk or something, but that's her own deck now. Yeah, exactly. All right, this next commander is a very spicy one. This is Siona, Captain of the Pileas. One green-white for a 2-2 legendary creature human soldier. When Siona enters the battlefield, look at the top seven cards of your library. You may reveal an aura card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Whenever an aura you control becomes attached to a creature you control, create a 1-1 white human soldier creature token. So this has some interesting tech going for it. The primary thing is that it goes infinite with Shielded by Faith. Shielded by Faith is one white-white for an enchantment aura with an enchant creature. Enchanted creature has Indestructible, and whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may attach Shielded by Faith to it. So you're going to have Shielded by Faith on one of your guys. You're going to play another aura, get a creature off of Siona, and then you're going to be able to move that Shielded by Faith to the new token. That, of course, is going to trigger Siona again. You'll continue going and get infinite human soldiers until you decide to stop. So that's like going to be the primary win condition for the deck, probably. You're going to be able to make infinite guys crack in with them. And then in addition to that, the ETB trigger is just really good. There's a lot of powerful auras in these colors. Note that it just says aura. They don't have to be aura with enchant creature. So you can run ramp auras like wild growth, utopia sprawl, overgrowth. I think I've got some numbers here uh, from the hypergeometric calculator. If you're okay with like an 80% hit rate, then 20 auras in the deck should be good enough. If you want a 95% hit rate, then 33 auras is probably where you want to be. That's where I'm running with my list. And I know that sounds like a lot because auras, like they're not typically good in commander. But the ones I'm I'm running are ones that are more typically useful than just like making your guys bigger. So there's the ramp auras. There's also a lot of cantrip auras so that it looks like an aura, but you're just trading it for another card by casting it. My first thought when I saw this card was like, this is possibly the best commander ever for flicker form, which <laughs> is an aura that lets you like blink it out and it comes back in the end step. That just makes it even better. Also, like, you can play, like, a high aura count deck with Siona because she makes her own other bodies, right? So you don't need a super high creature density. One last thing I want to say on the, the topic of Siona, although I was having trouble, like, finding the room for this in my list because it's so packed full of auras, making a bunch of 1-1s, that's good sack fodder. So, like, Skull Clamp is great in this deck. The tokens are all Skull Clamp compliant. And then you can fit in other sack oh, outlets, yeah. too, if you want to build in that direction. Fun thing that actually came to mind when you were talking earlier is just the thought of getting a Siona trigger off of putting, like, a Wild Growth on a Dryad Arbor. I don't know if you have Dryad Arbor in your list, but, like, might be a reason to include it. I should add it. This is Kroxa, Titan of Death's Hunger, a 6-6 Elder Giant for black and red. So just two mana. Uh, whenever Kroxa enters the battlefield, sacrifice it unless it escaped. Whenever Kroxa enters the battlefield or attacks, each opponent discards a card. Then each opponent who didn't discard a non-land card this way loses three life. And then it has escape for black, black, red, red, and exile five other cards from your graveyard. So um, 
basically the first time you play it, it's like a weird little sorcery, technically, usually. And then you can escape it for four mana and five cards and uh, get your 6-6 six, six roll in. But there's there's actually a lot going on here that I think we're going to get into. So do you want to get into some tech, I guess? The first thing that occurred to me was Sundial the Infinite. If you are willing to like play Sundial on two, wait until turn three, and then play Croxa and activate the Sundial, you can stack it so that his discard trigger resolves, and then you end the turn before the sacrifice trigger resolves. So then you just have a 6-6 six, six on turn three. I want to mention, too, that if you're okay with not getting that first one you can just also run torpor orb <laughs> two mana six six and then start attacking oh that's sweet that's good tech but then there's just a ton of other stuff so this is a discard deck so you're probably going to want to run waste not because that card is so good <laughs> and guess grimoire uh chainer 2.0 there's been a lot of talk about this guy in chainer but Chainer's also good in this guy's list they're so good together <laughs> Chainer, if you don't remember, allows you to discard cards in order to cast creatures from your graveyard. With Chainer on the battlefield and Croxa in your graveyard, basically what you can do is pay his mana cost, red, black, and discard a card in order to make all of your opponents discard a card and then potentially lose life as well. So it's just a way to like annihilate their hands by getting rid of your worst cards. It's like Raven's Crime, but good in Commander. <laughs> Other cool things, because he's a 6-6, six, six, maybe like Warstorm Surge or, or just doing things that based off of his power. I think there's a lot of good things in this color identity for helping you fill your graveyard to keep getting the escape threshold. Altar of Dementia allows you to sacrifice a creature and make target player mill cards equal to its power. So if ever he's going to die to like spot removal or mass removal, you can just sack him, mill yourself for six, and then you've got enough cards to recast him again. Cool. And then this list is just going to be running all of the good like loot effects in these colors to get you going anyway. And so let's say something terrible happens and you don't get any of this tech, but you do get your thrill of possibility and your faithless looting and stuff. Like, yeah, plan B of escaping, that's still probably pretty good. <laughs> so this guy just looks uh, great. I, I like this guy a lot. Also, it's a deck where you can run uh, Morality Shift, which is... Just a fun card that doesn't have enough opportunities to play it. So Definitely. That card is super sweet. The next commander is Utropia the Twice Favored. One green blue for a 2-2 legendary human wizard. Constellation. Whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature. That creature gains flying until end of turn. I'm not super high on this. This is one of the uncommon legendaries that... Uh... I think is mostly there for limited fodder. Um, and I'll say, like, I've been wrong before. Like, Halar the Fire Fletcher was kind of a limited bomb thingy that I thought was just going to stay there and people really took to. Um, I don't necessarily see that happening here. This reward is, like, not super good. <laughs> like, uh, you can't really cheat on this reward in the same way that people did with, like, Halar dealing, like, seven to each opponent and stuff like that. So, I don't know. I think there's... They keep making these blue-green plus-one-plus-one counter, like, commanders, but they, they're they all kind of not hitting the mark I feel like they need to hit, and I feel like this is another one of those. Just, like... Mm, I think there's... You just do something better. There's just another commander that does this a little bit better and you don't have to build around like so narrowly. It's kind of 
It's sad. This is one that I'm excited to have in the 99 of one of my decks, though. Even if these uncommon legends are mostly there to not be at the head of a deck, they still can fill decent roles. Like, I have a uh, Yaruk Enchantress deck, and this card is just going to do some good work in that deck. This is Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath. One green-blue for a 6-6 legendary creature, Elder Giant. When Uro enters the battlefield, sacrifice it unless it escaped. Whenever Uro enters the battlefield or attacks, you gain 3 life and draw a card. Then you may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. It also has escape for green-green-blue-blue and exile 5 cards from your graveyard. I think that a lot of the tech we mentioned for Croxus uh, works here as well. You're going to want to run potentially Torpor Orb... You're definitely going to want to run Sundial the Infinite, but because it's a different color identity, you're going to be moving in a different direction. We've got a list for this one, and you can check it out in the episode description. But there's a lot of green self-mill cards that will like give you value while putting stuff into your graveyard. So you can pretty easily get the escape threshold as often as you need it. Also, green is really good at uh, making use of large creatures. You're going to have your Rishkar's expertise. You're going to have your Hunter's Insight. Even greater good is, is very good in this deck, even with his sacrifice trigger on the stack. So you can draw six cards, discard three, have him back in your graveyard, and probably have enough to escape him after that. So I, I think there's a, a lot of good build around. I think green is a great color for these type of designs. I think that a set like this is crunched for mythic slots because you've got to do the five gods. They wanted to also do one for Clothis. And of course, they wanted like some high profile mythic sagas, like highlight their mechanics and stuff. If you noticed, um, Uro and Croxus, their ETB slash attack triggers mirror each other. Croxus makes them discard and lose three life. This one makes you draw a card, gain three life. And then the, the land drop is kind of a bonus. Given that they had two slots, they were like, okay, how can we make these feel like a pair and make them feel like complete together? Yeah, I think they did a good job of that. I think that worked out really well. Mm -hmm. Part of me wishes they'd mirrored the uh, triggers a bit better. Croxa only only domes an opponent if they didn't discard an on-land card. So like Uro, you know, could have been like, draw a card, then you may put a land card onto the battlefield if you do gain three life. That would have been the more perfect mirror, I think, but that's a very minor quibble. It's cool that they, in some form, reference the Titan cycle from like M11 way back when. Like there's six sixes with enters the battlefield and attack triggers, but just like tricks yeah. here. I think that's actually really cool. I believe on the art for the Binding of the Titans, I think you can see a third face. Yeah. They may be giving themselves room to expand on the next return to Theros. The thing is, it's not like the Underworld is spewing everything out. These are just the two that happen to escape, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. good point. We are done with the Legendary Creatures, and we're going to be moving on to some main deck cards, starting with a new Planeswalker. Yes, this is Calyx Destiny's Hand. He is a four loyalty uh, planeswalker for two green white. Plus one, look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal an enchantment card from among them and put that card into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Minus three, exile target creature or enchantment you don't control until target enchantment you control leaves the battlefield. So just to explain, you basically turn one of your enchantments into an O-ring. Then minus seven, return all enchantment cards from your graveyard to the battlefield. This is unexpected. <laughs> um, not super into him. 
I like what he's doing mechanically. It's a very cool Planeswalker, and if you're building a deck like Siona or whatever, you'd probably want him in your 99, just because he is so on theme and reasonably strong. But flavor-wise, I'm a little confused by him. He's a servant of Clothis, so why is he green-white instead of red-green? Like, they could do an enchantment-themed Planeswalker in red-green. Also, like, he was made to hunt down Elspeth, so why does he not have any abilities that interact with Planeswalkers or the Graveyard? Apparently, he had four abilities when they first made him. And for whatever reason, for the wordiness of the set, it was in... The Word Heist article? Yeah, wrote an article talking about how this was the wordiest set they've had in a very long time. So, like, words per card averaged very high. So they cut one of his abilities. I'm wondering if that maybe would have made him make more sense. Destiny as a concept feels more green-white. I think that Wizards was in a bit of a corner because like they they wanted to have like some sort of antagonist in the set that was like preventing Elspeth from breaking free of the underworld and they had this like slot open because the red green god was no longer there and so they were just kind of trying to make lemonade even though destiny feels very not red as a concept yeah like red's about freedom and free will and not being tied to fate yeah it seems kind of opposite To get back into mechanics, this guy just doesn't really do enough. I think Enchantress decks just have better things going on. A lot of the time, you can just get card advantage from your Enchantresses. (laughs) He doesn't really have a huge effect. Like, O-ringing something, if you have an enchantment on the battlefield when he comes down, is, like, a little bit too conditional. And he doesn't fit into, like, a Super Friends list. So he's just kind of in a weird spot for me. And also, like, if you want a green-white planeswalker and enchantment deck, you probably are better served by a Johnny Mentor of Heroes anyway, who can put counters on your creatures and grab you, like, creatures or auras or planeswalkers out of your deck. Which is kind of funny, because it's the green-white planeswalker from the last time we were in Theros. Yeah, I think they said in one of their articles that they were trying to refocus a Johnny as, like, a more narrow power set. He's all about, like, helping other creatures and helping planeswalkers. And they wanted to, like, introduce a new character that could just be the enchantment planeswalker rather than, like, warp one of the existing planeswalkers. Sure, but then who's Estrid, right? I think that said for Estrid that it was sort of like a media decision because like Estrid is always wearing masks and so it's like hard to show reactions and they like specifically gave Calyx a weapon that was like really dynamic and like would show well in other media. I think we're moving on. We got we got a batch of boys. Yeah, I'm going to run through all of these together because I think they only really fit into one deck, but feel free to push back on that if you disagree. Alseid of Life's Bounty is a single white mana for a 1-1 enchantment creature nymph. It has lifelink, and you can pay a generic mana and sacrifice it to make target creature or enchantment you control have protection from the color of your choice until end of turn. Also, Eidolon of Obstruction, one and a white for a 2-1 enchantment creature spirit with first strike. Loyalty abilities of planeswalkers your opponent's control cost one more to activate. Destiny Spinner, One and a green for a 2-3 enchantment creature human. Creature and enchantment spells you cast can't be countered. 
three and a green target land you control becomes an XX elemental creature with trample and haste until end of turn, where X is the number of enchantments you control. It's still a land. Skola Grove Dancer, one and a green for a 2-2 enchantment creature, Seder Druid. Whenever a land is put into your graveyard from anywhere, you gain one life. Two and a green, put the top card of your library into your graveyard. And Transcendent Envoy. One and a white for a 1-2 enchantment creature griffin. Flying aura spells you cast cost one less to cast. So Kestia the Cultivator was released with Commander 2018. It's one white, blue, green for a 4-4 legendary enchantment creature nymph. Whenever an enchantment creature or enchanted creature you control attacks, you can draw a card. She also has bestow for three white, blue, green. Basically, that deck is all about cheap enchantment creatures curving into Kestia so that when you drop her, you draw a bunch of cards. To make that deck work prior to this, you had to run some very, very bad cards. You had to run like Crystalline Nautilus and Sightless Brawler, <laughs> these terrible enchantment creatures. So the fact that this set has you know more than 20 new enchantment creatures in this color identity makes it so that you can replace a lot of those bad cards and just the average card quality of the deck goes so much higher. And that's what I think all of these cards I just listed are good for. I'd like to push back a little. I think the Destiny Spinner might see play in more decks in like control-heavy metas just because the fact that it makes your creatures uncounterable and has a decent body is mm -hmm. good even regardless of the activated ability. And the Grove Dancer could also see play in some like Wind Grace or Gitrog-style decks. Yeah, there's some utility for these other ones, uh, but I was just coming from a place of like, I have a Kestia deck and I'm putting in 14 new cards from this set. <laughs> yeah. You don't even run Lucent Limited in your Kestia deck. <laughs> the OG. This is Archon of Sun's Grace. A 3-4 Archon for two white-white. It has flying, lifelink, Pegasus creatures you control have lifelink, and a constellation trigger. Whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, create a 2-2 white Pegasus creature token with flying. I mean, that's not the worst constellation trigger, but I, it's also not what you need. I think they're kind of padding this by giving it a really reasonable body. But I don't, I don't really care if my Constellation Trigger is on a 3-4 Flying Lifelink for 4. I just want the trigger. Just give that to me. I think the easiest point of comparison for this card is a Johnny's Chosen, which is 2 white-white for a 3-3 three, three cat. Whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, create a 2-2 two, two cat. And if it's the enchantment is an aura, you can attach it to that token. Obviously, this card has a lot of benefits over a Johnny's Chosen. But, like, a Johnny's Chosen hasn't really caught on, and in my Enchantress decks, like, making tokens one at a time is not really what I'm trying to do. Enchantress decks tend to be a lot more controlly, and so they're not really interested in, like, creature rewards. The constellation triggers I've enjoyed the most have been the ones that control the board or control your opponent's hands or, like, generate resources, like, cards for you. I just don't know if, if there's a lot of lists that are interested in this. This next one is actually really exciting. <laughs> I'm so happy that we got to see some really good sagas in this set, and mm -hmm. I think this is one of them. So this is Elspeth Conquers Death, three white-white for an enchantment saga. The first chapter is Exile Target Permanent an Opponent Controls with Converted Mana Cost 3 or Greater. The second chapter is Non-Creature Spells Your Opponent's Cast Cost 2 More to Cast Until Your Next Turn. And the third and final chapter is Return target creature or planeswalker card from your graveyard to the battlefield. Put a plus one plus one counter or a loyalty counter on it. 
I like it. I think it's really, really solid. Even if you just get the first ability out of it, it's not the worst value. Like a five mana D spark is not so terrible, but obviously you want more out of it. I think it's decent value, even if it only goes through once. But obviously, if you can recur it, it's pretty decent. Yeah, I, I think this is an incredible tool for a lot of decks. The second chapter is whatever, but the first and last chapters on this are crazy good. Most things in Commander cost three or more. <laughs> if you can flicker this, if you can recur it at all, like there's so many ways. Like I, I love Sagas because they interact with so many things. They have an ETB trigger, but then they also sack themselves, so you can get them back if you have, like, enchantment recursion, like, all these things. And th this one in particular, like, if you can flicker this a few times, the board is, like, screwed. Like, whatever was a problem is no longer a problem. So I also like this card. I think that, as you guys mentioned, that the first chapter is always going to be useful, basically. Yeah. The second chapter, because they get a big heads up that it's going to happen, your opponents can always just like cast their non-creature spells while it's still in the first chapter, and then they won't get hit so hard by it. So I'm a little lower on that one. The third chapter is very strong, but its utility is going to vary based on what deck you're running it in. So in like an Enchantress deck, you're not actually running that many creatures most of your slots are going to be spent on enchantments. Like like my Enchantress deck runs 10 creatures and no Planeswalkers. Other lists might run a little bit more than that, but I think that like an Enchantress deck is going to have like a relatively low creature count. I, I think that like maybe in just like mono white, I have a bunch of creatures, I'm happy to exile my opponent's thing, and then I've got ways to like recur enchantments is going to be more valuable than in just an Enchantress deck that can't always use the third mode effectively. But the prospect of recurring this is super exciting. Like, Hall of Heliod's Generosity was made to pair with this card. I know, it's so funny. It's so funny that Elspeth Conquers Death and Hall of Heliod's Generosity go together so well. <laughs> if you want to be able to surprise your opponents with the Chapter 2 and not give them time... Casting this with flash on the last opponent's end step before your turn seems like a pretty good way to do that. If you have, like, Leyline of Anticipation or Vidalcan Orrery. Oh, or uh, Raph Capuchin. Yeah, that works. Although, to be fair, it'll probably go into the mono-white and building because that deck just needs all the help it can get. That's another thing about this card, though. It's mono-white. This is a yeah. great mono-white card. It's really exciting to see more cards that answer a bunch of different kinds of permanents and can't be undone like we've seen so many oblivion ring variants but they can always just like whoops like naturalized your o-ring and now i get my thing back but just like permanently exiling stuff is is much more exciting speaking of cards for mono white the next one seems very good it's heliod's intervention x white white for an instant choose one destroy x target artifacts and or enchantments or target player gains twice x life I just want to say this rocks. <laughs> this is yeah. awesome. I've wanted something like this for so long, and it doesn't make any sense that it took, what, 20, this is the 26th year of magic for yeah. something like this to exist. Like, I feel like every other color has gotten effect that they do often at like an X rate. Like blue has had draw cards or tap things or untap things or, or whatever. Like red's gotten like damage and, and shatters. Shatters. And yeah, exactly. It's so like, why did it take so long for white to get one? And really, this sounds like I'm complaining, but I'm actually really excited <laughs> that this is oh, cool. Oh yeah, no, this is this is good. The gaining life thing is probably not going to be super relevant, except to keep you from losing the game at times. 
And if that's the difference between you dying to a crackback and maybe winning on your next turn, then that's all the difference in the world. We've talked a bit about how, like, yeah, white has some fundamental problems because it can't ramp or draw cards. But an easy win, an easy way to make it better is just to give it more of the things it's already supposed to be good at. There just weren't many good white disenchant effects in existence. And this is a solid addition to the uh, the Pantheon. That could be another design space for white. If, if you can't give them card draw, then maybe sort of concentrate multiple things onto one card. Mm-hmm. That might be a way that they could do it. If they could sort of maybe start working more in volume like this, maybe make white sort of the X spell color yeah. for like destruction or that sort of effect. Yeah, because red has gotten by force, it's gotten shattering spree, it's gotten vandal blast, and a problem with a lot of the white mass artifact and enchantment removal is that it just hits everything. So like austere command, you're going to hit yeah. all artifacts or all enchantments, or or like cleansing nova, you're going to hit all artifacts and enchantments. But white, it's so dependent yeah. on artifacts for like ramp and card draw, and it's so dependent on enchantments for its answers because so many of its universal answers have been these O-ring effects and like. I don't want to blow those up. I don't want to blow yeah. up my own O-rings. This is Shatter the Sky. This is a white sorcery, a two white white. Each player who controls a creature with power four or greater draws a card. Then destroy all creatures. I really don't like this card. I understand like the role it's going to play in like standard, but I would have just wanted Day of Judgment here. That would have been so much... So much nicer. Yeah. Like, like you're probably in a game of Commander going to give so many cards away with this one card. Just for flavor reasons, they could totally just have reprinted Wrath of God. Or or you make know? it cost five and put a minor upside on it and call it Wrath of the yeah, Gods. Exactly. Like, there's so many Wraths already, there's no reason to play this. I believe the strategy in Wizards for the last couple years has been, rather than print four mana unconditional Wraths, to print five mana Wraths with upside... So that's how we got things like Fumigate or Cleansing Nova. I've really enjoyed those cards. I would so much rather get a little bit of upside, a little bit of extra utility for one extra mana than to just have an underpowered version that like compares so unfavorably to Day of Judgment or Wrath of God. Why not make this cost five or even six and be like, destroy all creatures, draw a card for each non-token creature you control that was destroyed this way or something? I would have rather preferred a more expensive Wrath that I could utilize in different ways. Yeah, like exactly. Like the Cleansing Nova or something like that. Like something that gives me a little bit more play than this one yeah. where it's just like, I, I'm just giving so much for it. So it's sad. Yeah. And I do want to state that like not all cheap Wraths with downsides are necessarily bad in Commander. Yeah. Like yeah. Toxic Deluge is awesome. But the main difference is that, like, there aren't really any three-mana unconditional white board wipes, but there's so many options at four mana that this just doesn't compare well to. And, of course, like, trading life for board control is a much better proposition than, like, giving your opponents a bunch of cards for that board control. Right. And the thing is, with Toxic Deluge, you're not, not really paying life. You're just paying the life you would have lost to an attack from that creature. Kiora bests the sea god. Five blue blue for an enchantment saga. The first chapter is create an 8-8 blue kraken creature token with hexproof. The second chapter is tap all non-land permanents target opponent controls. They don't untap during their controller's next untap step. And the third and final chapter is gain control of target permanent unopponent controls. Untap it. 
I think this card is very cool. I also love this card very much. I was just kind of excited to see these sagas with like really solid first chapters. And then like it just keeps going. I feel like a lot of the sagas we saw in Dominaria, probably just because they were cheaper, they give you like one of the chapters is always kind of a dud. This one, I'm, I'm pretty happy to run through this whole story. I'm like, yeah, I will tap all your non-land permanents down and they won't untap. Yeah, I will gain control of that thing. Like, this sounds great. I'm into this. I was very excited to see this card. I don't know who at Wizards gave the Kraken token hexproof, but whoever it is, thank you very much. Because that <laughs> makes the card like just supremely playable, even if it gets blown up after the first chapter goes off. An 8-8 Hexproof for 7 isn't the best rate, but it's still reasonable. I think it's one of my favorite cards in the set, honestly. Yeah, I was really hoping for big, splashy sagas coming into this set. A lot of the Dominaria sagas, they seem to be like balanced for standard or for limited. You know, making a couple tokens or whatever is not super exciting for Commander, but seeing this huge, splashy effect, an enormous threat, tapping somebody down, gaining control of something... These are all uh, incredible abilities, so I, I find it very exciting. It works great in a Chise Heart of Oceans deck, which is a 2 blue blue for a 4-4 four, four flyer. And at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice it unless you remove a counter from a permanent you control. So you can keep removing the counters from this, and depending on where you are in the story, you can either keep tapping down non-land permanent target player controls, or keep making your blue Krakens with Hexproof. And of course, because it sacrifices itself, if you have a recursive commander like Muldrotha or Hanna that can reuse it, gaining control of your opponent's commanders all the time or making huge threats all the time seems very good. So this is Thassa's Intervention. It is X blue blue instant. Choose one. Look at the top X cards of your library. Put up to two of them into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Or counter target spell unless its controller pays twice X. There are worse cards. There's also better cards. <laughs> this is like really firmly in like the middle for me. I'm probably not going to play it in most of my lists. I feel the same way. Pull from Tomorrow exists, which is just X, blue, blue, draw X cards and discard one at instant speed. It's hard to yep. compare with that. It's even worse than paying full rate for Dig Through Time. If I want to draw cards, like there are better cards to do that. And if I want to counter spells, there's better cards to do that. Maybe in the odd situation where you have like one slot and you kind of need a little bit of both, it might be good. Mm -hmm. But I'd much rather run other counter spells or other draw spells than this card. I think it's cool. I think it'll be decent for like uh, newer commander players or people that are on more of a budget. Like that'll be good, but it's just not there. Considering that we just got drawn from dreams in uh, M20, like that's two blue-blue mm -hmm. for a sorcery. Look at the top seven cards and put two of them into your hand. Yeah, it's sorcery speed, but you're paying four mana to do something that would cost you nine mana with Thassa's intervention. There's no comparing it. And you know what I can do with the rest of that mana? I can cast one of the counter spells I got off of my drawn from dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, if uh, you all are ready to move on to the next card, I think it's a pretty spicy one. It is Thassa's Oracle. Blue, blue for a 1-3 creature merfolk wizard. When Thassa's Oracle enters the battlefield, look at the top X cards of your library, where X is your devotion to blue. Put up to one of them on top of your library and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. If X is greater than or equal to the number of cards in your library, you win the game. 
this card is extremely powerful. Yeah. I really like this as a win condition for self-mill decks like Phoenix because unlike Laboratory Maniac, you don't need to have literally zero cards in your library, and you also don't immediately lose if someone else is able to disrupt it. If you wait to your draw step and then they kill the lab man, then you're you're kind of in trouble. Whereas this, like the trigger goes on the stack and unless they have like a stifle effect, good luck stopping yep. that. There's already murmurings that this is just going to make the uh, Flash Hulk situation in competitive EDH even worse, unfortunately. We did want to actually bring that up, that there there is Flash Hulk functionality <laughs> with this card. If you flash out your Hulk and you go get Spellseeker and Thassa's Oracle, Spellseeker can get Demonic Consultation, which is name a card and then exile cards from the top of your library until you hit the name card and put that into your hand. So you Spellseeker for the Demonic Consultation, you play Demonic Consultation naming a card not in your deck, exile your entire library, and then the Thassa's Oracle trigger resolves. Oh, I have no cards in my library. I win the game. And it's just very difficult to disrupt because if the Demonic Consultation resolves, then okay, I win. And if it doesn't resolve, then you're you're not in a bad position. Your library is still there. You can try again some other way. It's really low risk and extremely high reward. Right. The uh, actually harder to disrupt way is getting Cephalid Illusionists and Nomads on core in addition to the Thassa's Oracle, though, and then doing the normal Cephalid Breakfast combo where you just target the Illusionist infinitely with the Nomads on core to mill out your whole deck. And that one, you don't have to cast another spell and, again, would require a stifle to deal with. So there's a lot of options for, for people who are playing Fish Hulk. just makes the deck even stronger when it was already the top tier of CEDH. Yeah, definitely. And yes, just so everyone knows, the Commander Advisory Group and the Rules Committee are aware of this issue and will be watching the situation closely. That is a good PSA. In general, honestly, this card... I'm I'm happy about this card. Like, okay, yeah, Flash Hulk is more busted. Flash Hulk was busted. <laughs> but the other cool things you can do with it for, like, all of us, not flying as high in the stratosphere when it comes to power level players, this is a really cool tool, and I'm, I'm actually pretty excited to see it. I also really like it. I have uh, built a Phoenix list before, and it always felt bad that... In order to like get the lab man win, you had to just teeter on the edge of death. And it was so, so easy for someone to to just make it so instead of winning, you lose. To commit your entire game plan to I'm going to get my entire library into my graveyard and then I'm going to dread return lab man and then I'm going to flashback this thing twice. And then somebody has any removal spell that can kill a 2-2. Felt awful. The fact that this is harder to interact with makes it a more reasonable reward for this risky line of play. I wonder if it's also good in doomsday piles. It's got to be, right? Probably. I would oh, yeah, so. definitely. Moving on to the next card. Gravebreaker Lamia is four and a black for a 4-4 four, four enchantment creature, Snake Lamia. It has lifelink, and when it enters the battlefield, search your library for a card, put it into your graveyard, then shuffle your library. Also, spells you cast from your graveyard cost one less to cast. I am a huge fan of, like, Entomb effects, so Corpse Connoisseur has been, like, a really fun card to play with over the years, who, like, basically does that, puts a card into your graveyard. I like that this is an enchantment. I like that it makes things cast from your graveyard cheaper, so this is good in, like, Chainer 2.0, which casts cards from your graveyard. It's really good in, like, Kess lists. This just has a lot of places it can go. 
So I'm pretty high on this card. This is really cool. The only previous Lamia was Thought Render Lamia, and that didn't really look like a snake. It was just sort of a woman on all fours with like a mane falling behind her and big, thick paws. I think that they like added the snake type to this in order to make it match the popular conception of a Lamia, which is more snake-like. And also to like make it more relevant for tribal stuff, because like one Lamia in Magic, you can't do anything with that. But yeah, I think it might see play in like Muldrotha. That's probably like the best place for it, but um, there's a lot of commanders that can make use of entombing stuff. Nightmare Shepherd is a 4-4 flying enchantment creature demon for 2 and 2 black. Whenever another non-token creature you control dies, you may exile it. If you do, create a token that's a copy of that creature, except it's a 1-1 and it's a nightmare in addition to its other types. Zach and I play a lot of graveyard decks and we're both very phobic about (laughs) exiling our own cards. So it is nice that it's optional, so you can do it only when it's most uh, beneficial to you. But I I don't know if I would be super interested in running this in a generic reanimator deck because I'd much rather just be recurring them with my other black cards. I personally am very excited for this card. I have a Demon Tribal Rakdos the Showstopper deck, and this card is just beautiful for that deck. The fact that a lot of the other creatures are good for their abilities, like, okay, you kill my Sire of Insanity, now I have a 1-1 Sire of Insanity, it's still going to make you discard your hand in my end step, right? My demon deck doesn't run a lot of uh, reanimation recursion stuff, so something like this card is perfect for it. And like, yes, it's not a thing for a sort of graveyard deck, but it's a good tool for decks that aren't heavily... uh, using their graveyard, so I think it's a very good card. There definitely are uses for this. Like, my first thought when I saw this was, this is very novel, I'm not going to do this. Because I really do like the Soul Separator from Shadows Over Innistrad, which made, like, two tokens, one that was the power and toughness of the creature, and one that was, like, a spirit with the text box of the creature. I loved that in theory. I just really hate exiling my graveyard. But I had the same thought with this guy. I'm like, oh, this is a really reasonable cost to do this. So if you're in the market for that, heck yeah. Oh, another thing I just realized from my Rakdos the Showstopper deck, if some people try and kill my commander, I can let him go to the graveyard, trigger this, make a token Rakdos, and then send Rakdos back to the command zone with the exile. That's actually pretty funny. (laughs) I like that usage. If you had like Kakusho as your commander, you could do the same thing. It's actually pretty good for any sort of black uh, death trigger, so Elenda is decent. Yeah, that's really funny, actually. Elenda, one day, will be a playable deck. Are there any other black commanders with uh, death triggers? I don't think so. I think there's only a handful. There's like the five Kamigawa dragons, Roalesque, Elenda. Yeah, there's, there's not really much going on there. They might end up making more in the future, so who knows? So the next card is Dream Shaper Shaman. It is 5 in a red for a 5-4 enchantment creature Minotaur Shaman. At the beginning of your end step, you may pay 2 in a red and sacrifice a non-land permanent. If you do, reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a non-land permanent card. Put that card onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. I'm low on this card. I normally love sacrifice outlets, but it's nine mana to get your first trigger, and I think that's a bit much. Even though this is like a really powerful effect, 
a good point of comparison might be Reality Scramble. Yeah. So Reality Scramble is two red red for a sorcery. Put target permanent you own on the bottom of your library. Reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a card that shares a card type with that permanent. Put that card onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. And it has retrace, so you can cast it from your graveyard by discarding a land, in addition to its other costs. That is just a much more efficient way of doing the same thing. Yeah, you're paying one mana more on the the per-turn basis, but you can cast it multiple times in a turn. The initial investment is basically zero instead of six. So I would much rather be using Reality Scramble than trying to make use of this Shaman. The only thing that I thought about when I saw him was like, oh, an expensive Minotaur I can cheat in with Didgeridoo. That was all all I really thought. I see a lot more upside, especially in a deck that has any sort of reanimator component. If I'm paying less mana to get it into play by reanimating it, it's a much better deal. The fact that it happens every turn and is on a reasonable body, and it can turn, say, a treasure token into an enchantment or a creature or whatever, that can be more of an upside than Reality Scramble, which can only get you the same sort of thing. Although Reality Scramble lets you build around it more in that sense. Yeah, I am a little worried about like flipping into a, a talisman or a, a signet or something off of the, the shaman. This is Furious Rise, two and a red for an enchantment. At the beginning of your end step, if you control a creature with power 4 or greater, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card until you exile another card with Furious Rise. I think that this is really good in certain commanders, and the one that we wanted to talk about was Hazaret the Fervent. You're pretty much just always going to get the extra card off of it, and I like this wording more than other wordings a lot, too, so I'm hoping that they keep doing something like this when they do cards like this in the future. The end step wording is nice because it pays off on the same turn you cast it. Yeah, exactly. And and also just giving you potentially as much time as you need. Like if it gets turned off later, you can still keep that card around. You don't have to do it just at the end of the next turn like they have been doing recently. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I think this is a good card for red lists that have trouble drawing cards, but also have a big boy. (laughs) Yeah, which there are some of them. And I hope we see better versions in the future because... Outpost Siege costs one more, but you just do it. I think I like this better as a second copy of Outpost Siege than something like Vance's Blasting Cannons, though, because this does let you play lands, which Mm -hmm. Vance's Blasting Cannons doesn't let you do. Cannons does have the upside that if you ever cast three spells, you can turn it into the Bastion, which lets you pay three to Lightning Bolt something, but I don't know if that's really an upside when you lose the free card every turn. I mean, I, th- I think the cheaper cost and immediate card access is good. Also, the fact that you get the card on your end step lets you plan for it better than having a use it or lose it situation, getting it on your upkeep and having to cast it that turn or not. Our first green card for the day. This is Dryad of the Elysian Grove, a 2-4 enchantment creature nymph for two and a green. You may play an additional land on each of your turns. Lands you control are every basic land type in addition to their other types. I love this thing. It's really good in green-black decks as Urborg Redundancy, because it'll make all your land swamp, so you can bring coffers online. The extra land drops are relevant to a lot of commanders. Lord Windgrace, for example, the Gitrog monster. Making all your lands into basic land types is also relevant for, like, Patron of the Orochi. He taps to untap all your forest and green creatures. Well, all my lands are forest now, so I'm untapping my utility lands as well. It's good in landfall decks. It's good in Kestia because it's a strong <laughs> yeah. enchantment creature. 
obviously it's good in five color decks just because it fixes your mana the same way that chromatic lantern does oh yeah chromatic lantern yeah yeah one of the problems i always had with prismatic omen uh which is one in a green enchantment lands are each basic land type is that that's all it does sometimes that effect is just worth it sometimes you were doing something and you just needed that and whatever like you're gonna play that card the added utility and you get an extra land off of it but it can block for you if you need to and it's easier to recur because multiple colors interact with creatures and enchantments and this is just so much more going for it one thing that i thought was interesting about this card is it states in the name that it's the dryad of the elysian grove but it doesn't have dryad on its type line and in the previous theros block whenever they had a dryad it was both a dryad and a nymph so it's interesting that they didn't do it here it's possible that this is because this is part of a cycle. There's a cycle of enchantment creature nymphs in this set. My first thought was that they were just getting rid of the dryad creature type because it's only a subset of nymph. But Morrow stated that he, he didn't believe that was happening and the update bulletin didn't show errata for the previous dryads that had been printed. So I don't know. Interesting decision. I don't think it's the part of the cycle thing because the previous dryad nymph was also part of a cycle. It was part of the uncommon bestow cycle. And that didn't stop them from making it a Dryad Nymph. This is Elysian Karyatid. This is a 1-1 plant for 1 and a green. It has tap. Add 1 mana of any color. If you control a creature with power 4 or greater, add 2 mana of any 1 color instead. I would run this in the, the same decks in which I'd run Whisper of the Wilds, which is mostly the same card. If you have a green legendary creature with four or more power that costs four or more, it's probably good, especially if it costs exactly four. I really like just playing this or the Whisper on turn two and then playing my commander on turn three and then turn four, now it taps for two. Now it's a Draga Tree Speaker. Nessian Wanderer is a one three Seder Scout for one and a green. Constellation, whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, look at the top three cards of your library. You may reveal a land card from among them and put that card into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. I want to play with him to see how he feels, because I've seen numbers on him. We use the hypergeometric calculator, and it says if you have 38 lands, you'll have a 77% chance to hit. But do I want that? Yeah, I, I don't love it as much as a typical Enchantress, because like Enchantress cards can feed themselves you know, there's a decent chance that you draw another enchantment and keep it going. Whereas this one, it's always going to get you a land. It's never going to get you gas. So even yeah. though it is cards, a land card is not always the same as a, a non-land card. Anyone who's right. played land tax a lot can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try this in the Arak. I think yeah. with the double trigger, it'll obviously play better than with the single trigger, but I'm not necessarily like wowed by it, but I think it'll do decent work. I think your list in particular is one of the ones where it will be best. I believe this is the last constellation trigger we're going to be covering. And it's interesting, in Mark Rosewater's second preview article, he stated that um, early in design, they had planned to make it so that constellation could be on non-enchantment permanence, but could also be on enchantment permanence. And it looks like somewhere later in the design process, they just shifted over so that constellation is now entirely on non-enchantment permanence. It's also only on white, green, and blue permanence, if you haven't noticed. Oh, interesting. So it's a shame that none of the Constellation cards are able to trigger themselves. That's definitely a big downside relative to the first batch we got in Journey into Nyx. 
So this is Nyx Bloom Ancient, a 5-5 elemental enchantment creature with trample for 4 green green green. If you tap a permanent for mana, it produces three times as much of that mana instead. That's many. That's many. That's big. Big numbers. Many <laughs> much manas. Oh, so many manas. And it's it's permanent. We haven't seen that wording since mana reflection. It's weird to put a rampy card at seven, though. It's like, what are you ramping to at that point? Like mm-hmm. Eldrazi or what? I totally agree with you. I think that's the question you need to ask with this card. Yeah, because there are definitely ways to win the game for like eight or nine mana in green. There are a couple decks that it might make sense in. Zakama, Primal Calamity, has a lot of ramp, so you can get the Nyx Bloom Ancient out relatively early. And your commander is a mana sink, so it'll give you something to do with all of that mana you're generating. You can kill a whole bunch of artifacts and enchantments. You can deal a whole bunch of damage to opposing creatures. To be fair, I have decks where if I can get to like 20 mana, then I usually win. So this is good if you have a list that's kind of geared like that. Like, you just have to have the mana sinks. Like, if you're just going to put this into a deck to be like, wow, so many, it's not really going to do that much work for you. One other thought that comes to mind is like a Gargos sort of Hydra deck, like a big X deck. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was exactly what I was going to say next. If, if you're running a, a list that is like a lot of X spells, crew fix list, this is going to be awesome. There's definitely lists that will take as much mana as you can give them. Just like to throw in a rules note on this, effects like Nissa Who Shakes the World or Wild Growth, that style of effects that adds additional mana when you tap a land for mana, that mana is not being made by the permanent you're tapping for mana, so that mana will not be tripled. So for example, if you have Nissa Who Shakes the World out and you tap a forest for mana, you'll get four mana, not six mana. That actually is a very good distinction to make. Thank you for that. I think we can move on to the next card. It is Dream Trawler. Two white, white, blue, blue for a 3-5 creature Sphinx. It has flying and lifelink. Whenever you draw a card, Dream Trawler gets plus one, plus zero until end of turn. Whenever it attacks, draw a card. And you can discard a card to give it hexproof until end of turn and tap it. I wish this was mono blue for Unesh. Like, you take lifelink off of this and how is this card white? Also, just in general, I'm kind of disappointed that there were only two Sphinxes in the set. One is a really bad common, and then there's this, which isn't mono-blue, so like Unesh is getting no spells. Still, it's Theros, Greece. Why are there not more Sphinxes? Yeah, I'd say the same thing about Hydras. I don't think we got very many Hydras in this set, but Gargos was just printed like a few months ago. It seemed like it'd be the, the best place to print more of those. My thought when I saw this was, wow, that's a really good limited bomb, which means... I usually don't like it in Commander. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of where I'm at with this guy. I want to see if listeners at home can guess where I'm going to say these cards go. The first one is Bronze Hide Lion. It is a 3-3 cat for green and a white. It has green, white, Bronze Hide Lion gains indestructible until end of turn. And when Bronze Hide Lion dies, return it to the battlefield. It's an aura enchantment with enchant creature you control and... Green-white, enchanted creature, gains indestructible until end of turn, and it loses all other abilities. So basically, you have a Watch Wolf that can gain indestructible, and when it dies, you give that ability to be indestructible to something else as an aura. So, kind of cute. Interesting. The other one is Leonin of the Lost Pride. It is a 3-1 Cat Warrior for one and a white. When Leonin of the Lost Pride dies, exile target card from an opponent's graveyard. Can we spot the similarities here? These are both cheap cats. They both kind of do 
something, and I would put them in Arabo. A lot of the strength of Arabo is just like how quickly you beat face and hitting for six on turn three to like the person who is like playing ramp spells or whatever. You can kind of punish them a little bit and it's awesome. <laughs> it feels great. Yeah, a big part of Arabo is making sure that you're actually using the giant growths every turn. If you're not casting cats on like turns one, two, and three, then you're giving up a ton of the value that he offers. The big game is getting those one, two, and three drafts because like you're investing so few cards in the board and dealing so much damage so quickly Like before a lot of people get a chance to stabilize. And then once they do, what, they got your three, one for two? <laughs> like <laughs> like no, no skin off your back, so... The next card is Enigmatic Incarnation. Two green blue for an enchantment. At the beginning of your end step, you may sacrifice another enchantment. If you do, search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost equal to one plus the sacrificed enchantment's converted mana cost. Put that card onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. The A B on this like really made me think hard. So like Muldrotha is in color to use this card really well. You can kind of reuse the same enchantments to dig for creatures. I don't know what other deck I would put this in because there's not really other decks where like I have enchantments that are disposable that I would want to turn into a random creature. I can't I can't find that overlap. Yeah, so. and the the color identity is a little bit restrictive. Yeah, exactly. So like Muldrotha, like this just seems like kind of a card advantage engine, which is cool, but there's so many like hoops to jump through that I think Muldrotha just kind of gets a free pass because you're you're drawing free cards. So you can kind of just put this in there and it'll do work where other commanders are going to have to work for it a little little bit harder. So not really sure where this goes. I might put this in Yarok, but I have to do the A-B math on it. Is Kestia interested in this at all or not really? The thing is, like, my enchantment creatures are mostly interchangeable and they're also kind of cheap. There's not really much of a chain because it's like, okay, I want my one drops, two drops, and three drops, but they're all basically as good as each other because I just care (laughs) about the bodies, not the abilities. Right. You care that they are permanents that are both enchantments and creatures and that's it. Yeah. We got a cool new land. I'll read it off and then I have a note about it. Labyrinth of Scophos. It's a land. It taps for a colorless and it has four. Tap, remove target attacking or blocking creature from combat. The art on this card you can actually see in a lot of the art of the minotaurs in the set. So like some of them are like standing on top of it, uh, some of them are hiding in it. But this is great. I like this card a lot. I run Mystifying Maze and Lists and this is better sometimes and worse others. Yeah, I was looking on EDH Rec and Mystifying Maze, it sees most of its play in colorless decks because they don't have color requirements. They can just run as many utility lands as they want. And I think that this is sort of a side grade. There's definitely pluses and minuses. Mystifying Maze could kill tokens, but Mystifying Maze also had the potential to like blink your opponent's ETB creatures, which was not lovely. I think in, in one of those colorless decks, you'll probably just run them alongside each other. Next card we're going to talk about is Shadow Spear. One mana for a legendary artifact equipment. Equipped creature gets plus one plus one and has trample and lifelink. You can pay one generic mana to make it so that permanents your opponent's control lose hexproof and indestructible until end of turn. And then it equips for two. It's amazing how few equipment actually give lifelink at a good rate, and this does that at a great rate. Like, Trample is kind of dime a dozen. You can get that wherever from a bunch of different things. Lifelink is really important for certain lists, 
if you're running a Heartless Sejitsugu deck, when Heartless Sejitsugu has lifelink, that's hilarious. <laughs> because you're like, yeah, we all take half our life, and also I'm at huge. I'm at very large. Audric 2.0, this is two abilities for really cheap. SRAM, it's a one-mana artifact, so you can draw a card off of it. The only gripe I have about this is like how generic this feels for being this legendary spear. This is supposed to be this god-slaying weapon similar to godsend. Like, it's actually the, the shadow side of the Spear of Heliod. Yeah, see, there you go. It just feels very generic for being a legendary equipment. This is the fourth sort of generic equipment that can give anything lifelink. Yeah. And it's, you know, only the second really cheap one. Just nerfing Hexproof and Indestructible is super, super good. Exactly. I was going to say, like, it's, it's, it's free because, like, I'm getting what I wanted out of this card. I'm getting the lifelink. And then if the opportunity ever arises, I can get the Indestructible. Like, it seems like they costed this card not because that ability is there, and that is awesome. That feels real good. I'm surprised that they didn't make it a colored artifact. They really, like, blew that out in Throne of Eldraine with, like, Embercleave and uh, the Cauldron of Eternity and the Great Henge. And I'm surprised they didn't do it here because it seems like the justification for what artifacts are colored is mostly, like, flavor at this point or if they feel a certain color. And this card feels very, very black. It's called Shadow Spear. The flavor text is a weapon of darkness for a warrior of light. It was pulled from a nightmare in the underworld. It's supposed to be the dark reflection of a colored artifact that is white, and it is dripping with ichor if you look at the card. It's strange that they didn't make this a black artifact and maybe like give yeah. it a little more juice. Yeah, it's an interesting choice because they were talking about like they wanted to make that more of a common thing. And so then to get into this set, and not only is there a really good opportunity in this card, but there's just no other ones. You'd think for this, they would make the exception, even if it's just one, because, like, Godsend was the only one in its set. It's not like it would have been out of the norm for them to make this black. In that Mark Gottlieb article about the word count, they said that they did change a lot of cards, like cards that they could just cut words they did, cards where they couldn't, they changed. I would bet that this is one of those cards, that this did something originally, and then they changed it. That brings us to the end of this journey for now we have seen all of the theros cards that will be coming out and it's i think about time where we do our how good did we guess what cards are going to be played <laughs> let's see our hit rate our guesses more or less in order fabled passage arcane signet kenrith's transformation the great henge return of the wild speaker thrill of possibility murderous rider oko Fabro elder dance of the manse So that was our prediction for most played cards from Eldraine during our end of previews wrap-up. And let's see. Number one is Arcane Signet with 13,000 decks. So we were correct in thinking that would be one of the most adopted. Fabled Passage is next with 4,600 decks. Following that, we have Mystic Sanctuary with 3,500 decks. Sir Conrad the Grim, that's a surprising one, with 3,100 decks. The Great Henge with 2,700 decks. Return of the Wild Speaker with 2,200 decks. Faber Elder does have 2,200 decks. Castle Vantress with 2,100 decks. Castle Lockthwain with 2,000 decks. Mirror Maid with 2,000 decks. And then it sort of drops off from there. I think the thing that I am learning from this was the power of a good common. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's the thing that I think threw off my predictions. I was I was expecting a lot of the cool splashy cards to kind of push a lot of these other cards out. And to be fair, some of these are right up there. So like Return of the Wild Speaker did see a ton of adoption. But like the Mystic Sanctuary, I think that's just because like these cards are easy for people to get their hands on, but are they're also good. I think I'm going to keep that in mind going forward. I was a little surprised that Kenrith's transformation didn't see more adoption because it does shut down your opponent's commanders fairly well. It's it's never going to be on the level of a Dark Steel mutation or a Song of the Dryads, but it draws a card and it is very annoying if it's yeah. ever happened to you. Oko, I can see why it was significantly less than we were expecting. Like at the time we had made this prediction, it wasn't anywhere near the price tag that it carried at yeah. its peak. So I think that definitely discouraged people from adopting it. And then Dance of the Mance, that one's just a bit too narrow. I can see why it didn't catch on. But I think we did fairly well. We caught some of the most popular cards, and the discrepancies we noticed did make sense. So here are my top 10 guesses for cards that are going to see the most adoption as measured by uh, the number of decks in EDH rec. So I think the number one card that's going to see the most adoption is Heliod's Intervention. As we saw with Smothering Tithe, if a card is a powerful new addition to a color that's kind of like struggling for playables, then it's going to see a lot of play. And I think that Heliod's Intervention is the best new white card from this set. Dryad of Elysian Grove, I think that's going to see a lot of play. It fixes your mana, which is really important for budget decks. It provides you with extra land drops. Green's a very popular color. Satessan Champion, I think that a lot of people are going to be making Enchantress decks in the wake of this set, and Satessan Champion is going to be very easy to get a hold of. Nyx Bloom Ancient, Mana Reflection has seen a ton of adoption on EDH Rec, and this is sort of a, a new version of it. It's very splashy, so I think that's going to get some attention. Nyx Lotus is a new mana rock. There's a lot of monocolor decks that will be interested in it. Wavebreak Hippocamp is an excellent source of card advantage for decks that are trying to play on their opponent's turns and run a lot of counterspells. Thassa's Oracle is an exciting new win condition for self-mill decks, and it will definitely make a big splash in CEDH. Nylea's Intervention will help you assemble uh, land-based combos and just get a ton of value. Gravebreaker Lamia is a powerful tutor for graveyard-based decks. And Underworld Breach is a very powerful combo card, sort of the new Yawgmoth's Will. So I think those are my top 10 that I expect to see the most adoption out of Theros Beyond Death. Charlotte, do you want to share your picks for the cards that are going to see the most adoption? This is in no particular order. The first card that came to mind is Ox of Agonus, because it's a repeatable source of card draw in red which red doesn't tend to have, and especially when red is paired either by itself or with a color that doesn't have a lot of card draw, I think it'll see a fair amount of play. There's also, I think, a higher proportion of red decks that don't necessarily care about recursion from their graveyard, so it will probably be a popular choice. Thassa's Oracle will see a fair amount of play just because it's a good ability. It's a merfolk, and it can just straight up win the game. People like cards that say win the game on them. I think Erebos will see a lot of play. Like, I think it'll honestly take the place of the original Erebos in a lot of decks. I also think Heliod will see a lot of play just because it's a solid good white card that also has a lot of built-in combos with it. Nyx Bloom Ancient and Nyx Lotus, mostly for the same reasons that were talked about before. 
Same with Twilight of the Elysian Grove. I think Kiara bests the Sea God will see a lot of play just because it's a very cool factor and people like their big sea beasties and then Gravebreaker Lamia as well because it's the first card to ever reduce costs of spells in graveyards. The Omen Cycle will also see a good amount of play. They're solid enchantments. I think they'll do a lot of work without necessarily being all-stars in any specific deck. All right, we will uh, see how predictions shake out when it comes time for Ikoria spoiler season. But mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you for joining us today, Charlotte. It was great to have your perspective on the, the new spoils. It's always a pleasure to be on. It yeah. was a lot of fun. Looking forward to the next time I can be on again. Yeah, and hopefully be really soon, honestly. Well, with that, I want to give a brief thank you to our Patreon patrons. They are Bradley, Gustav, Ryan, Mark, Addison, Mason, Will, Rick, Laser, Raphael, Kyle, Charlotte, Andrew, Tom, The White Clays, Aubrey, Hannah, Anthony, Andy, Cooper, Dylan, James, Justin, Logan, Roger, David, Evan, Bryce, Dylan, and Benjamin. Thank you all for supporting the show. And if you're not currently a patron but would like to become one, you can go to patreon.com slash commander theory. Thanks for listening. If any of you theorists want to get in touch with us, I am at Commander Theory on Twitter and Tumblr, and Zach is at Fat Bartleby on Twitter. Our theme song is Lincoln Continental by Entropy, and you can check him out on SoundCloud. Until next time, we're going back to the drawing board.